0: The Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. Visit Christie's.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction. Private sales. Online. Art. Anytime. Hello and welcome to The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week would have been so-called Giga Week, with the major auctions of Impressionist, Modern and Contemporary Art in New York. Of course, they've been postponed. But are collectors buying art online instead? an explosion of digital initiatives and online galleries or viewing rooms followed the cancellation of fairs and the closure of auction houses and galleries over recent months due to the coronavirus so this week we're looking at the implications of going digital for the art market are people buying online how effective are the online initiatives we talk to Scott Rayburn, who writes on the art market for the New York Times and the Art Newspaper, and our art market editors Anna Brady and Margaret Carrigan take us through some of the initiatives, including the experience of the viewing room for Freeze New York, which closes today, 15th of May. Also this week, in the latest in our Lonely Work series, Exploring Art Behind Closed Doors in Museums, Rebecca Salter, the President of the Royal Academy in London, tells us about Cemetery by Leon Spilliette. Before all that, a reminder that you can read the art newspaper anywhere, anytime with our iPhone and iPad app. Visit the App Store, search for the art newspaper and then you can install the free app. If you're a subscriber, all the app content is available as part of your subscription. Now, as I mentioned, this week would have been one of the art market's busiest and reporters like Scott Rayburn would ordinarily have been in bustling sales rooms in New York with the sound of clinking glasses, frenzied bidding and thwacking gavels ringing in their ears. But Scott, like most of us, is at home and instead exploring the online alternatives. I spoke to him about the market's rush to digital and what he thinks the long-term implications of the crisis will be. Scott, it's obvious that there is going to be a profound hit to the economy from this, but what hopes do you think the market has realistically pinned on digital?
1: Uh, Pretty much all the hopes at the moment. Without uh, live events, it's the one lifeline uh, that they have, the one means they have a generating income. But the problem is that for years, the art market was way, way behind other sectors of the global economy in terms of digital transformation, digital sales. Um, just to give you one sort of headline figure, last year, um, online sales represented just nine percent of the estimated sixty-four billion international art sales. Now, if you take the music industry, at least eighty percent of music sales are through streaming and digital downloads. Um, a completely different, different universe. Now, suddenly, um, dealers and auction houses, in their in the contrasting ways. Are desperately having to depend on online platforms to try to claw back revenue,
0: and and you know the reason that we're doing this this week, Scott, is that is that is that it's it would be a, a monster week in in the auction calendar. Um. So what what are what are you seeing out there that people are doing to kind of create a sense of excitement around this week in in its place?
1: Well, it's it's interesting because today. May 13th would have been the in the evening, Sotheby's would have offered a, a Francis Bacon triptych for, for $60 million. Um, and last year, the equivalent sale made $342 million. Now, what's happening at this moment as we're speaking is that Sotheby's have got an online sale of contemporary art consisting of 25 lots and online sale of impression modern art of 25 lots. Um, when I looked last, the top bid for the contemporary sale was 600,000 for a Nara painting, and the impressionist sale, 280,000 for a Renoir. So, uh, this is a massive, massive contraction. Now, admittedly, hopefully, that Bacon and they've got a Clifford Still and a Liechtenstein, each at around 20 million will eventually get offered. But in terms of what's happening now, it's a, a, a huge, huge contraction.
0: Why weren't they prepared? Is is it purely that the existing status quo was was doing so well that they just thought, well, we're not going to need to be as digitally focused as other industries?
1: First thing is it's it's a very traditional industry. Even within the, the contemporary sector, you have these great big grand buildings that everyone's terrified to walk into. Um, you've got these auction houses. It's essentially a, a, an 18th century model of doing business. And even in the contemporary sector, these sort of 18th century ways of doing business have, have remained pretty well unchanged. Um, the other problem, of course, is a, is a sort of technical problem that, that artworks are generally unique and they're generally horribly expensive, um and so it's not like buying a a a download or a or a book from amazon these are unique objects you're paying a lot of money for them and people want to see them and they want to have a discussion with a with 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 a gallery owner or an auctioneer about them and this has always created a, a a barrier to an exponential increase in 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 online sales in this particular business sector
0: to what extent is it also about demographics in the sense that we hear a lot about the pursuit of new and young collectors? If there was a really critical mass of natively digital collectors, would that have made an enormous difference in terms of developing digital platforms more quickly?
1: Well, there is, uh, in the UBS um, Art Barza report, one element that did emerge was, said that, there was a, uh, that millennial collectors were spending more money than their parents' generation through online sales. Now, this is from the ultra-wealthy sector of, of society. Um, I think one thing that has blindsided the growth of online sales of art is actually a very fundamental and profound change in consumer spending habits, particularly in terms of... it's a lot of people have written about it and a lot of people are analysing it at the moment. The shift among millennials and uh, ge- younger uh, uh, consumers towards experience rather than possession. So I think we have, what we see here now is that actually younger people aren't that interested in owning art at all. And this has suppressed, I think, or dampened demand in the online sector because, of course, this is the generation that feels very, very comfortable about buying things online. And also younger people just simply don't have as much disposable income as their parents. And art, as we've said before, is just very, very expensive. All of it's pretty expensive. Um, You know, I remember having a conversation with Sean Scully and I, I, I... I mentioned him, well, the problem with you famous artists, you you don't produce enough inexpensive things for for middle class people to buy. And he said, well, what are you talking about? I make prints are only $10,000. And I said, have you any appreciation of how much $10,000 is to most people? And he didn't seem to have an idea about that.
0: You talked about the the thirst for experience there. And that's also crucial, isn't it now? Because suddenly we're thrust into this position where experiential art has suddenly become difficult. I, i I talked to Marina Abramovich last week and we talked about about how suddenly performance art was fundamentally potentially unhealthy, that level of interaction with the audience. And so that's very much a factor in all this as well, isn't it?
1: I know. I, Naomi Klein has written about how big tech is going to, to capitalise on this situation. And I thought there was one very, very revealing quote from someone called Anuja Sonalka, who's CEO of Steer Tech a Maryland-based company selling self-parking technology. And she said there has been a distinct warming up to humanless, contactless technology. Humans are biohazards, machines are not. And the idea that every human being you see is a biohazard, I think is going to have the most catastrophic effect on, on the art world. Not in terms of the experience of artists being able to do works that involve participation and congregation but just the idea that in any environment the person in front of you could possibly make you die is making things very very difficult for the creative industries
0: and also obviously for the theatre of the art world right that seems to be absolutely crucial because because you know, so much of the exclusivity of the art world is in the kind of whole shebang around the work, not just the work itself.
1: Uh, uh, utterly. You see, and this is the problem with, with digital, both in, in the world of auctions and art fairs. It's it's impossible to quantify, but um, it's the whole froth of going, particularly for a very wealthy person, of going to these events, getting into a VIP car, being seen going around the fair with your art advisor, meeting other very, very wealthy collectors. And you can say, well, I've got that, that green Coons. Oh, you've got the magenta one. Having conversations like that, going to dinners at the Three Kings or the, the Chilton Firehouse. It's, it's to, to anyone not involved in this world, it seems nonsensical froth, but actually it underpins the value at the very, very top end of the market. And if you skim away that froth, it's going to have really profound effects on the on the economics of the art world. In relation
0: to all this, I'm wondering, you know, are we being overly pessimistic? And are we thinking, look, the art world is full of creative people, There there is now massive investment going into the digital? Are we underestimating the capacity of the art world to recover and find new idioms, new ways of doing things?
1: In the sense, there are three or four conversations going on there, and they're really fascinating subjects. Um, artists will con- carry on creating art; that will continue. But the way that people talk about digital transformation in the art world, the way it's reported, is inevitably a bias that going digital is very, very positive. But when you actually look at the numbers, um, they're really, really scary. I'll, I'll give an example. I've actually there's a company called Pyax who analyzes the data of auctions now we can't we, we can't get data on sales reliable data on sales from from art fairs um or from dealers but we can get verifiable data from from auction houses and piex has analyzed results from last year's auctions and compared it to this year and what's particularly interesting is that overall April is, is is emerging as the cruelest month, because in April, for the first time ever, all the auctions were online. So you had essentially 100% online auctions. And April's an interesting month because it generally doesn't have the distorting outliers of major evening sales where things make tens of millions. So in a sense, it's a sort of typical month for the auction world. Now, Last April, the three main auction houses, that's Phillips, Sotheby's and Christie's, took $585 million in their live auctions and online auctions as well. Now, this April, which is 100% online, they took 44 million. So that's down 92%. Now, that's a considerable, considerable hit. And what's also significant about it is that actually auctions are an environment which do suit online selling because people are generally, it's, it's a secondary market, this stuff isn't fresh, people are familiar with these images. So it's even tougher for the dealers when they're selling unfamiliar material. So the numbers are really pretty frightening.
0: But, but if that's the case, would not a socially distanced phys- physical event Remedy that. So in other words, so let's say the UK's now saying they're going to have, you know, there is the potential for auctions to happen in due course, where, you know, fewer people, it's all very carefully managed and socially distanced, because you will have the people bidding on the phone, you will have people bidding online but you have something of a physical event where there is an auctioneer and the work is work is behind them and you have something of the theatre which you, you know is it possible that that with an element of easing of the lockdown that it won't be so catastrophic
1: what i find surprising is there is a format that actually can solve a situation which is a, 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 a which i think you're alluding to which is a, a hybrid auction which is essentially live you have it on camera You have an auctioneer and you have people taking telephone bids and obviously the auctioneers taking online bids, but there's no one in the the auction room. This happened in the past actually in live auctions. For example, there's something like a book sale. You go into a book auction at Sotheby's and you'd be the only person in the room. So there is a present actually in live sales. But I know Christie's is going to experiment in this format with this format in Hong Kong. And I think it it would work, particularly as when you actually go to a live sale, there's so little bidding in the room anyway, most of the people there are there to be seen to show that that they're still players, they're in the action, they're still in the game. Um, and only a tiny proportion of bidding actually comes from the room, so that is the solution. I'm, I'm, and I'm slightly surprised the auction houses aren't pushing that as a, as a, as a, as a, a an effective compromise.
0: So we will have this ongoing situation we expect for at least a couple of years, and. Um, so we're so the, there's going to be obviously a very deep financial hit right now, but the the art market has shown terrific resilience in the past. So you know it was clear that the art market recovered better than many other industries from the financial crisis. Could that not happen again, or do you feel that? the situation will be so significantly different that it's not a a metric to compare against?
1: This this is a fascinating question because when you look at the figures from 2008 to 2009 when the the art market, um, in inverted commas, collapsed or had a serious downturn, uh, it bounced back very, very quickly indeed and uh, within, within a year or so. And the reason for that was that the central banks used quantitative easing and they took a great financial fire hose and sprayed liquidity at uh, the financial institutions and that very quickly inflated asset prices for example property equities and art and so we that kickstarted the boom again now very little of that money actually trickled down into what we would recognize as the real economy and it exaggerated Financial inequality, income inequality, to a to a to a really concerning degree. The big question hanging over this current crisis is how governments are going to pay for their rescue packages. If they take a more imaginative approach and rather than use quantitative easing or, God forbid, tax cuts, then income inequality would be reduced. And actually, paradoxically, that that would put less money into the art market. What we're seeing, though, that for example, there's a fascinating podcast between um, the philosopher and neuroscientist Sam Harris and Andrew Yang, who is a, a democratic um, candidate for the presidency. They discussed income inequality and the big choices facing America. And of course, if Trump wins in December. It's their view that their income inequality will, will will really quite explode, and already the rescue packages that are devised by the U.S. government, most of that money, the vast majority, is going to big corporations, and that will give wealthy art collectors more and more money. And the whole thing could bounce back very very quickly indeed. If, on the other hand, Trump loses the election and Biden were to win, then I think more social democratic and um, more, more measured and a more evenly spread settlement might ensue. Uh, and that would, interestingly, back up the, the theory that pandemics generally reduce income inequality. But I noticed today in The Guardian that Thomas Piketty, who's the author of Capital in the 21st Century, he's unsure which way it will go. It's on a knife edge where the income inequality will explode or there will be imaginative solutions to the settlement and money will be more evenly spread. If the latter happens, then actually that will, that will suppress prices in the art market. It's, it's, a, it's a fascinating choice.
0: One of the interesting questions will be if we get to a situation where there is a recovery to let's say there's a positive recovery things go better than uh, expected to what extent digital will have an increased presence in the armory or whether it will go back to this kind of status quo before you know will it's will will it be We've learned a lot from that digital experience, but actually this worked better. Or do you, so in other words, I suppose what the question I'm asking is, do you, do you feel that we now face a future in which digital continues to grow and grow in the armoury of auction houses and galleries? Or do you think there is a possibility where it just it retreats back to a relatively insignificant role in all this?
1: I think so, what, what one fascinating element w- would be art fairs. I, like a lot of people like you, I'm sure, looked at the the, the the Freeze virtual art fair. You know, one interesting aspect of it, slightly jumping around, is that to get into it, you had to have a VIP pass, uh, which I thought was a very telling illustration of the exclusive and marginal nature of the art world. Um, can't ordinary people look at it? but apparently you have to be a VIP to have a nose around. Uh, I thought that was, that was quite telling. Anyway, once you get into got into the site, and I think my reaction slightly reflected, there was a, a a good piece by Tim Schneider who sat sort of side by side with the collector going through the fair. Interestingly, that collector bought three pieces and they'd all been reserved beforehand. Right. Well, what was interesting about it is I couldn't really tell the difference between this is a, an art fair and an aggregator internet shopping site. You know, I felt at times so I could I could I could have been buying a shed or a rowing machine. It really didn't make that much difference. And as an experience, it was just really really boring. Now there are if you if you look at some of the viewing rooms that are being created, there are some quite imaginative solutions coming up. And it occurred to me that the art world is actually a small industry, which is why Big tech hasn't really got involved, but it struck me that if someone really got hold of this ball and ran with it, who is very savvy in terms of tech, they could go to the, the these um, dealers and say, "Well, actually, if we're just going to have virtual fairs, which aren't really fairs. Um, I can do something more exciting." And it struck me that the, the the sheer sort of dullness of these events is well, they're no they're not events; these virtual fairs. I think they're very very vulnerable, and something very imaginative, much more imaginative, could be created, and very quickly um, the the hegemony of of, of freeze and art bars could could slip away quite quickly. And I think. what Secondly, I, I having spoken to dealers and spoken to to. to um, people who construct these viewing rooms, I think dealers are realising that when they're well-designed, they do draw people in and are a very, very effective adjunct to, when we finally get round to it again, going into a gallery and seeing the object in person and talking about it. Um, And so I I can see that this uh, refined and much more imaginative Uh, approach to tech will actually augment the physical live aspect of certainly of gallery life and and of auctions well there's a slightly
0: more positive hint in that last answer (laughs) (laughs) Scott, Scott thank you very much for joining us thank you You can read Scott Rayburn's writing for the art newspaper at theartnewspaper.com or on the app. A bit later, we'll hear from our art market editors about the range of digital initiatives and we talk to Rebecca Salter about Leon Spilliet. But first, here are some of the top stories on the website this week. The British government's roadmap to easing lockdown, first delivered in a pre-recorded television broadcast by Prime Minister Boris Johnson on Sunday and followed up with a more detailed dossier on Monday, suggests that British auction houses and galleries could open as early as the 1st of June. Trade associations announced that the government has agreed to recognise galleries and auction houses as non-essential retail and therefore part of a second phase of the easing of lockdown beginning on the 1st of June, subject to the infection rates falling, of course. However, the UK's Department for Culture, Media and Sport told our writers Anna Brady and Annie Shaw, that cultural organisations, including museums, will be considered as part of the third step of the process, so will not open before the 4th of July. You can hear more on this in a moment from Anna Brady. The Museum of Modern Art in New York has reportedly become involved in the controversy over plans to demolish a government building in Oslo, known for its concrete murals conceived by Pablo Picasso. Gareth Harris writes that the Y block is due to be demolished under government plans following a terrorist car bomb attack in 2011. But a letter from MoMA representatives, including Ann Temkin, Chief Curator of Painting and Sculpture, asked Norwegian politicians to reconsider the approved decision for demolition. The Brutalist building, designed by the Norwegian architect Erling Vikso in 1969, features two murals designed by Picasso sandblasted onto its concrete walls. The Fisherman, on the building's façade, and the Seagull, located in the lobby. They would be salvaged and relocated under the current plan. And finally, Photo London is sketching out a vision for a socially distant art fair, Annie Shaw writes. The organisers announced that they plan to open the fair in early October to coincide with Freeze and that the fair is temporarily locating to Grays Inn Gardens. Its usual venue, Somerset House, is occupied by the 154 African Art Fair. Grazing Gardens is one of the largest privately owned gardens in London and would allow Photo London to construct a tent large enough to adhere to social distancing rules. Photo London's co-founder, Michael Benson, says he's cautiously optimistic about his event happening in the autumn. You can read all these stories and more at theartnewspaper.com or on the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. As collectors and art lovers increasingly look to browse and purchase online, Christie's continues to expand its online-only auction calendar with two new sale offerings. Now open for bidding, bring craftsmanship into your home with The Collector, Christie's online sale of furniture and objects from the 17th to the 19th century. And discover Collection Edmond Cormier de la Noue, a fascinating sale of old master paintings, modern art, sculpture and scientific objects. The refreshed schedule complements Christie's private sales and buy art at any time and from anywhere find out more on christie's.com welcome back now our art market editor anna brady and senior editor in new york margaret carrigan have spent much of the last two months in online viewing rooms for galleries fairs and auction houses so what are they made of it they join me now to discuss their experiences anna you this week reported on the uk easing its lockdown and the effect On the market and actually some particularly some initiatives which have bumped the market up the sort of time schedule for this. Can you tell us more about that?
2: Yeah well um, Boris Johnson um, published the UK guidelines on Sunday and then on Monday uh, with a bit more clarity but Um, I think a lot of individual industries, the art industry included, didn't really know how these general guidelines were actually going to apply to them. So on Tuesday morning, there was a phone call between various trade associations and um, some of the auction houses with the um, Department of Culture, Media and Sport, who they've been talking to quite a lot um, over the, the lockdown. Um, And that was really to kind of thresh out exactly how this will apply to auction houses, to commercial galleries. Um, They also actually ended up covering museums as well, just in terms of how, what they might be able to do in terms of coming back into into action and possibly reopening. So on that, it was established that the commercial galleries and the auction houses can start to reopen from June the 1st as part of, we're calling it stage two, with all the social distancing measures in place. Um, So that was kind of what we didn't know beforehand. And these trade bodies have been pushing over the past few weeks for commercial galleries and auction houses to be considered among, they're calling it non-essential retail businesses, which are being allowed to reopen hopefully in June if infection rates allow.
0: A few WAGs on Twitter have pointed out that it's quite amusing to see art galleries and auction houses defining themselves as non-essential retail after so long telling us what important august cultural institutions they are.
2: Yeah, I know. It's quite funny, the fact that they were were pushing pushing to be defined um, as such. I mean, and also the other thing is that um, with social distancing, I mean, if you look into the vast majority of swanky Mayfair galleries in their white cubes, social distancing in them is not going to be too hard anyway because most of the time um they're empty or have possibly a couple of other people in them and somebody glaring at people on the front desk so um so that's that they're actually going to be easier to control because a lot of them have got buzzers on the door anyway what is going to be much much more difficult is fares obviously, as well. Um, auction houses, they kind of sit somewhere in, in between. So they're probably going to be able to start possibly doing live sales, but with a much, much reduced um, audience of maybe, say, 10 people. Um, those details have got to be sorted out in the coming weeks. So so they're not quite sure exactly how they can operate as yet.
0: That's the kind of big surprise, isn't it, Anna? I mean, in a way that that, that it was expected was it not, that auction houses would be sort of grouped together with things like cinemas and theatres because they were sort of so audience-driven?
2: Yeah, so Anthony Brown from um, the British Art Market Federation has been pushing on this point for quite a few weeks as he was saying that um, back at the end of February, um, I can't quite remember the um, regulations name, but the UK government passed these regulations which kind of formed the legal basis for the lockdown. And um, as part of that... um, Auction houses, or auctions rather, were um, categorised with nightclubs, um, theatres and cinemas because there's this sort of general perception that they're always crowded places. If you see them on television, they're big evening sales. There's loads and loads of people in there. So they've been pushing the point that auction houses don't necessarily have to be like that. They can either be done just with the auctioneer and people on phones and people bidding remotely or just with a very, very few bidders in the room. So they have actually been able to really push auction houses forward in terms of reopening. Um so that I mean, Sotherby's told me this morning that they are planning to reopen from the from June the first with staggered opening hours and probably doing some well quite a lot by appointment only and with a sort of routing system through the actual auction house itself, rather like they're doing in supermarkets at the moment uh, as well. but um yeah, again, they're, they're also trying to work out exactly um, what sort of requirements will be in place over the next few weeks. When they get a bit more instruction from the government.
0: Okay, so let's turn to the digital because it's you know yes there will be some easings and obviously that hasn't yet happened in the states, Margaret. But still, I think digital is going to be something of the the most dominant reality. And you two have spent a lot of time recently dealing with these digital initiatives. Let's start with freeze New York because that's still on as we speak, and. That viewing room obviously is is about as high profile as it gets. So, Margaret, you read a big piece about this. Do you want to? Do you want to tell me about your experience?
3: I think what's really interesting about these online platforms is, no matter how much money and tech you're kind of pouring into them, they are just kind of rudimentary um, online marketplaces and 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 vastly behind the curve. Like my big takeaway from it was that. I could, you know, when I was saying that, like online shopping requires, you know, putting a bunch of stuff in your cart and then be like, oh, I don't want any of that. Um, there's no cart function on on something like Freeze or even um, Art Basel's, and most people thought that the Freeze online viewing room was a step above the initial Art Basel one in, in March, um, just in terms of functionality, but it still had some very weird ticks that should ostensibly the technology exists to fix like things like the filter function you could only filter by price by medium and by gender which I did not understand that seemed like a weird choice but I uh, okay Um, (laughs) um, and then on top of the price like really easy glitches that should have been caught I think way in advance is that when you're filtering by price if you're looking for works under $10,000 works that were 100,000 euros were still coming up because they were in a different currency. I think it's difficult to compare the online viewing room experience to an actual fair in any any sense of the word, because as much as the, the quality of the work might even be there, the the quality of the experience is so low.
0: One of the things that Scott Rayburn just said when I talked to him about all this is that you know it, 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 the theatre aspect of the art world is so crucial. And one of the things that occurred to me as someone who doesn't spend a lot of time in these viewing rooms, is that there was none of that? It was very prosaic. Maybe that's what the galleries and the fairs want, and they've learnt that that's what the collectors want. But it seemed to me that it was it wouldn't hold you for very long. This experience, Anna, do you want to? What was your experience of that?
2: It's really hard to try and get a sense of kind of anticipation and event about a website i mean you do feel for the fair companies um with this it's how you how you keep people engaged how you sort of keep that sense of momentum and maybe discovery um when you're going through a website i mean there's no when you walk into a fair there's a kind of there's a sense of um starting somewhere and finishing somewhere whereas with this it's sort of infinite there's no end to it um and it also doesn't lift you out of your everyday life i find you know your the dog could still bark your child could still come and interrupt you and want to go want to want you to play with them you're not lifted into that kind of glamorous sense of of you know just being in another world for a little bit suspended in this um lavish wealthy world for for all its faults um you know with the with the restaurants that go with it and everything else it it you just can't have that online um and it to some extent maybe that's to do with the fact that these are event companies they're very very good at producing live events like freeze and basel that's what they do suddenly they're expected to be brilliant um digital companies as well um and they're just learning, I mean Victoria Siddle was quite um open about the fact that the freeze platform was something that was being developed anyway, but they kind of they've had to scramble it um for this occasion, so they were lucky to have something to start with but um they made you know no bones about the fact that it is definitely still in in production that they're still developing it they'll take it back after this is finished and develop it further, but yeah, it's definitely bringing up all of the flaws and quite how far we are behind, say, the fashion world. I do think it's really interesting what you said, Anna, about, you know, how
3: Freeze and Art Basel both claim they had this already in development um, and this kind of technology. So I think what's an interesting part of this equation to me is that there was clearly a kind of strategic plan within the art world to do much more of this. And now we're being forced to. And there's been kind of a a resistance to buying online for so long, um, at least in mass quantities, um, and now that's the only way to buy. So I I think what I take away from like this idea that everyone was already mid-development on these platforms, and that's not just the fairs. That's places like Hauser & Worth that was developing its own virtual reality software and virtual viewing platform and all these other like mid-tier galleries that are launching their own um, viewing rooms, which is basically like an updated website <laughs> um, that has a little higher-res... Uh, images on it, things like that. Um, I think there is, there is this question of, clearly, they knew they were going to need to start integrating this into their business model. But I don't know that they have struck on the audience for it, or, or the, the quite right um, understanding of who uses websites to, to buy already, because I don't think it's their predominant client base now.
0: That's really interesting. It was a question I asked Scott, which is this, this idea that, you know, is there a, di- a more digitally native audience for buying art? So in a sense, is is there anyone out there who's thinking, ah, at last, this is the most convenient way for me to buy art. I don't really like the atmosphere of galleries, but I like art. And therefore, finally, this is their time, if you like. Is there any evidence that people, there is a younger, perhaps, audience that wants to buy art like this?
2: I feel like at the lower kind of end of this of this market, there probably is, what I don't think they're going to be happy doing and what I think is frustrating is the fact that these um, all of these websites, you can't do like a buy now function. You have to click on the inquiry button, then send an email and then you have to wait for the gallery to respond to you they might be very quick but often um they won't be in particular say on an opening day if they're getting lots of inquiries so you, it kind of t- like what makes for me what makes kind of e-commerce work is um the instant nature of it the fact that you can just click on it and buy it and get it sent to your home at the moment um with this you obviously have to inquire about it you don't know the exact price um so all of these things which are so important for making say online fashion work very well don't apply here and then there's also the other... And this is just a logistical problem at the moment to do with coronaviruses. Um, I think a lot of these pieces, you won't be able to have it shipped to you for quite a long time because um, air freight is... Well, shipping's much, much reduced. A lot of the shippers have furloughed all their staff. Um, the cost of air freight has gone through the roof because there are so few flights and so few routes. Um, and, you know, anything that needs an export licence, certainly from the UK, won't get it. So... Um, yeah, all of these sort of instantation instantaneous factors um don't really apply for this. So it's got a few barriers. I don't know what do you think about that Maggie? Well, I think the yeah, the
3: the shipping issue is is a bear but also probably temporary. But the buy now thing is, I think, a really big issue facing the, the pivot to online right now. Um, and it is one thing that I would, I will say that Sotheby's did well with the introduction of their gallery network platform, which um, they allow ba- basically like point-of-sale purchases within their own online platform, which they are hosting galleries on, which is kind of a strange model to have an auction house bring in dealers and be like, hey, sell through us. But what it allows... Buyers to do is to do that exact. You know, I want to. I want to buy this right now. Click. Here's my credit card info. Boom. It, and it's all processed through Sotheby's, and then Sotheby's just goes and tells the the gallery, "Hey, you sold this work through us." And I think that's actually really, really smart because that is how online sales, I think, need to happen. Um, at, at least at, throughout most of the market. Obviously, like. Really big ticket items maybe will require a little more back and forth, but that's that's very common practice already. When you're trying to sell a multi-million dollar work, you're gonna have to do some hand-wringing and and meeting and talking and viewing and um but it's a, it's something that the art world has struggled with with the, the buy now feature. That's something that like an a pre existing online sales platform like Artsy introduced last year, but hasn't had a lot of success with but i think sotheby's potentially could because sotheby's has the uh industry brand recognition and kind of like vetting cachet to make a buy now purchase more of a safe bet
0: one of the things that we know about about galleries is that is that that you see and one of the things that we've seen on the online viewing rooms is that is that there are prices given for for most of the artworks Um, but we also know that different prices there are different discounts for museums all that kind of stuff but with auction houses like Christie's and Sotheby's in a way is it is it straighter in the sense that you know the the price given will be the price paid or is it and therefore is that an advantage for auction houses in this sort of more impersonal world or is that is that a a simplification?
2: I think it probably is an advantage in this in this sort of world and as you say the fact that auction houses it's always been a little less intimidating because you can see the estimate or you know even if it's a live sale you're sitting there bidding and you can see how the price is going up and you know um or you should know when when you have to stop bidding when you can't afford it anymore whereas as you say with a with a gallery often it's not so clear you have to find out what the price is you're never quite sure whether that's the price for you or whether that might be a you know lower or higher price for somebody else um, so yeah, so I think it's possibly less intimidating and the auction houses, they've been doing this for ages and in online, instant online sales. So they do have, you know, they've got a really big head start with having done live bidding as well. So, so yeah, I think, you know, they've been trying to kind of engender this, um, this, um, trust in buying online for, you know, 15 years probably. So and you don't really have that maybe through the fairs, although a lot of the buyers will you know, buy at auction and at fairs as well. Um, as you say, there's sort of something to do with brand trust that is built through relationships and just getting used to buying in a certain way from a certain platform. Maybe that's something that's got to go, um, grow for fairs and, and for galleries as well.
0: Margaret, in in your piece about the freeze online it, it was really interesting to, to see that, you know, certain prices were being given, you know, you could, you could, you could explore in a more transparent, apparently transparent way what what the prices are. Is that something of an illusion? Is it genuinely transparent?
3: No. Um, I think there's a lot of people talking about how, well, and, and this isn't a new conversation. This has been going on since the advent of, of selling art online um, over the past two decades, Um the idea that there's some kind of like transparency by being able to purchase online or a more democratic field that allows more buyers to come in and purchase artwork um i think is has always been kind of a red herring the the potential for it perhaps is there but you know um only the auction houses are really the the bastions of of pricing um and that's how it, kind of how the art world has always established the the value of of works against this um the prices that they're willing to publish and and, and post in their sales. But um, now that you have it coming in to other spheres like the freeze online viewing room, um, something that it's something that started also with uh, the art Basel, Hong Kong viewing room in these online viewing rooms, the sale price is listed. And then you have to, you know, click to inquire. You can't buy it right then. The inquiry process is where any, any number of transactions could start to occur. Like, discounting and, you know, kind of going back and forth with the client about what, what maybe they feel like they want to spend, or if they're going to put in an institutional collection, then that, that's like business as usual, 100% for the art world. And then on the, on the Freeze platform, what I thought was so interesting is that once the work has sold, you can no longer see the price it was listed for, it just says sold. So in the end, that isn't offering any more transparency. They could ostensibly put whatever price they want on that work. Then whoever inquires about it, they could offer them another price, and then we'll never be the wiser for what it actually sold for. Um, But I do think that this kind of moment is bringing up some interesting um, dialogue around what it means to have price transparency in the art market, and that it's been... Um, kind of evidenced in a recent online sales platform that was started by this conceptual artist, Darren Bader, who is selling his own work and the work of about like 20 other mid-career artists through their dealers on his website that he's created. And they are all the, all priced um, as what they would have been for sale for, ostensibly in, in a fair setting. And then that price is struck through and next to it is a price in red lettering f- and th- they're all discounted um, from anywhere between 30 and 90%. And so you can kind of see the arbitrariness of pricing and artwork within this really simple kind of tongue in cheek sales platform that he's created that is offering a lot of commentary on how business is done, but is also just a really good way to move some artwork in this particular moment.
0: <laughs> and let's see, also, he's also sort of engaging with the taboos of selling art, right? So he's Exploring the idea of the inventory, which is a word that sends dealers into a panic. You know, you're not, you're not supposed to mention inventories and the stock of an artist that, that dealers have. So, so not only is it a platform for selling, but it's a commentary, right? So it's, it's almost, um, sales platform as artwork, right? Uh,
3: yeah, it's definitely, it's a really sharp commentary. It is an artwork, um, as, website essentially but also a very functional artwork and and this is really a hallmark of of Darren's work already I mean he has always been interested in looking into the meaning of art and its relationship to money and you know like 5 years ago he raised $16,000 on uh, a crowdfunding website in order to sell the stack of money itself as as a lot in, at Christie's in London, and ended up you know netting more than the sixteen thousand dollars, and then he just donated it all to charity. So um, he kind of plays this with this a lot. But I think I think what's interesting about his platform inventory um, is is that it it's that moment where this has clearly been on on a lot of people's minds for a really long time, and now is the kind of uh, point to drill down on what what we're doing in the art market currently and how can we do it better
0: can we talk about some of the things which we've liked um because i'm aware that we, you know you know so far with both scott and you guys we sort of had a quite a critical view but there are some things which i think all of us have engaged with that we've we found enjoyable experiences and, and I, I know that um anna you like the Vigo gallery site which get, which feels more sort of virtual like a virtual experience
2: yeah, it's interesting how it doesn't necessarily have to be the very biggest galleries to doing some of the best stuff here as well. It's sort of it's interesting how it's kind of playing with the hierarchy a little bit when you're in the online space. Um so they've produced a really cool um VR sort of gallery tour, online viewing room um which I just think is a lot more kind of sophisticated and it feels a lot more real. It feels like you've got that sense of exploration which is really hard to create online. Um so I like what they've done. And to my mind, it's a lot better than what Hauser and Birth have done as well with their um, VR space and the the Menorcan one, which I kind of is clever. I like it. It gives a sense. They're very good actually. That gallery at kind of creating this um, a sense of atmosphere in a website, which is quite hard to do. And and their their brand is very strong in that kind of way. Um, even though it's very kind of lifestyle-y. So with the sort of music and. Everything else, it kind of you do get a sense of of the space that they will be creating in Menorca, which is meant to open next year. Um, So yeah, so it's interesting to kind of see those those different kind of approaches.
0: Margaret, anything that's caught your eye as an effective use of digital?
2: I do think that like something like
3: um, Hauser is a really interesting technology. Like that's, I think it's cool that they've created something so in depth, Um, and we're going to see, I think, a lot more of that kind of bespoke. VR technology coming out from mini galleries fairs. I know that Untitled Art Fair is going to launch a kind of similar um, software for, for their fair platform soon. And um, uh, I don't know if it's good or good or bad per se, like it's, it's certainly entertaining. And I think that that entertainment is probably important because that's, that's what the art world has also kind of really relied on to get people excited about it.
0: And also, it seems to me that, the, you know, the art world has had such control over its aesthetic, and it's an aesthetic that really works, you know, that, that arch coolness that so many galleries have, you know, the, in the materials of the architecture, in the spacing between the works, everything is so immaculately controlled, and suddenly, there's a whole new language that they have to learn about how to make things sell online, which is so totally different from the physical experience. So it's just, in a way, it's a sort of challenge for all the galleries and the auction houses and everyone to to develop an aesthetic for selling art online, which attracts that level of kind of atmosphere and event culture, which is so central to art sales, right?
2: That's so interesting, actually, the idea of kind of um, how do you put a personality of any business effectively into a website, um, I would have no idea where to start. But it's these tiny little subliminal messages, really, when it comes to when you visit a gallery or an art fair, or it could be a restaurant or whatever else it is. That it'll be like the scent of the of the hand soap and the loose or whatever whatever it is, like the little tiny kind of signifiers of of the quality of that place, the kind of place, the kind of person that's meant to appeal to. Um, And of course, you know, the fact that you're part of part of that club, part of that tribe, if that appeals to you. Um, And I'm sure that these online spaces, I mean, particularly, you know, the World Health Organization yesterday warned that this might become endemic coronavirus as well. So, I mean, you know, we don't know how long we're going to be living with these um, online viewing rooms for. um, And I don't think they're going to go away. But it would be interesting to see how how they can start to more effectively imbue um, art with that kind of same perception of, of, of value.
0: It's all very intriguing. Anna and Margaret, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thank
3: you. Thank you.
0: You can read Anna and Margaret's latest reports on the website and the app. And finally this week, the latest in our series, Lonely Work, in which we look at artworks in museums that have closed because of the coronavirus. This week, Rebecca Salter, the president of the Royal Academy, has chosen Cemetery by the Belgian artist Léon Spiliet. The RA had opened a show of Spilliet's work, the first ever UK survey, on the 23rd of February, but it closed along with the other UK museums a few weeks later. You can see an image of the work as we discuss it at theartnewspaper.com. Click on the podcast link on the homepage and look for this episode. But before we turn to the Belgian, I asked Rebecca Salter about the announcement that the Academy had cancelled this summer's exhibitions of Cezanne and Angelica
1: Kaufman.
4: It feels to me as if we're 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 involved in some extraordinarily complicated game of three D chess, and exhibitions are, are, are deep frozen all over the planet, and it's going to be it's going to take a long time to unpick it and get all the rec- exhibitions in the right place. And when we looked at both those exhibitions, it just became, they were due to be here in the summer. And it it was a pragmatic decision, really. The institutions that have them at the moment, so the Kunstpalast in Dusseldorf, which has the Kaufmann, and the Princeton Art Museum, which has um, the Cezanne, they'd only really had them open for a very short space of time. So it was a very sad decision because obviously you don't like to cancel exhibitions, particularly for the curators and all the staff who've been working so hard on them. Of course. And I have to say, as the first female president of the Royal Academy, there was going to be something rather wonderful about the opportunity to open the exhibition of Kaufman, who was a founding academician.
0: I mean, the Royal Academy is in a unique position because while a lot of people listening to this will probably think that Royal Academy is publicly funded, I know it people isn't. do. Sadly, <laughs> yeah, but so so I'm um, you know obviously that suggests to me that you're more precarious than other in, other public institutions. Is that the reality? Are there pros to your position as well as cons?
4: The word that keeps going around my head in relation to the Royal Academy is plucky. And I think the fact that we've been independent for 252 years now means that we've met various crises along the way and we have found a way through them. And I think that does give us a certain amount of flexibility. And I think possibly we can take decisions quite quickly because of that. Um, but of course, it's still not easy. And we are losing, facing the loss of about a million pounds a month during closure. So it's profoundly uncomfortable. But, you know, again, as I keep saying, you know, everybody's in and nobody, nobody has ever done this before.
0: Now, one of the shows that you sadly had to close not long after it had opened was the Léon Spillette show which was in the Sackler Galleries at the top of the the building. Um, I I was amazed to see that it was only open for three weeks for some reason I had a memory that it opened in January but you only had a very very small window in which to introduce it to the public.
4: Indeed indeed.
0: So we're going to talk about one of the works that's in that show now, um, Cemetery and I'm really interested why this image of of all of them.
4: (laughs) Yes, can I say something about Spilliot first? Yes, yes, yeah, please. I mean, do. this again is a is another sadness that I'm dealing with. Um, about thirty years ago, I had a part time job in a in a Bond Street gallery, and at lunchtime we would all sort of we were all artists who were working there part time, you know, wrapping up paintings and whatever we were doing. And at lunchtime we'd sort of wolf down our sandwiches and then fan out around the galleries to see what was on. And I can clearly remember walking out of the front door and looking across Bond Street. And while I'd been working in the morning, somebody had put a new painting in the gallery opposite. And I, now, I and I found out afterwards, it was a spiliot, and I was drawn to it. I wish I could remember which one it was. And of course, it's embarrassing to say this, but pre-internet, it was very difficult to find out, you know, I deciphered the signature. <laughs> And then there was nothing in English, and I any Belgian I ever met, I'd asked about Spiliot. I finally did meet a Belgian who sent me a catalog, so I was thrilled at the idea that we'd have him in the Royal Academy. So it's desperately sad. Yes. Yeah, so why this picture? It's very interesting because when I when you asked me to do this, I was quite keen to talk about Spiliot because I was quite, I'm still quite interested in what it was about his work that drew me in. Um, I think there is um, an element in his sort of compositions which resonate with Japanese art and, of course, having spent a long time in Japan. I think that's probably why I was drawn to him. And then, of course, the other extraordinary thing is that they are about solitude and isolation, which, of course, is what we're all dealing with. So when I got the catalogue out, I immediately went to the ones that were my favourites before lockdown. But in the end, this was one of my favourites, but I ended up being drawn to this one. And I think it's partly because you almost feel as if you're inside looking out, and that's what we're all doing a lot of. That's right. Whereas my previous favourites were the ones at the end of Ostend Pier, which, of course, are profoundly plein air, outdoors, looking off into the horizon. Um, And this, to me, feels... I mean, it's not a very appropriate title, really, Cemetery, but anyway, it feels more like a lockdown view.
0: Indeed. I mean, it, it's, it's a really, it's a su- supremely powerful image, isn't it? It's so portentous, which is, of course, the common quality of so much of that early period of his work, which, which the, the Royal Academy show did, to its credit, I think, focus on, in the sense that, so Spilliat is, is, is such an, a, curious character and um and obviously had this incredibly tormented existence tormented by illness um by insomnia he would go on these long walks in the city so so there is this sort of matching of a kind of uh, this sort of inky darkness in the work with the kind of the darkness of his of his psychological experience right
4: yes and i think that's that's what makes them so powerful and particularly now because i think what we're all discovering is that there are joys to solitude and isolation, but there are also really quite profound difficulties. Um And I think that's what he wrestled with all his life. And he found some solace, particularly in the landscapes, I think.
0: I'd, I'd like to explore that Japanese quality, because one of the things that I, I looked in the catalogue, because I, I knew I was talking to you and I knew your your background with, with your six years, was it, in Japan? Yeah, yeah. And and so I wondered, obviously, because of the sort of distinctly Japanese quality of some of his work, whether there was much evidence of him having looked at the prints, which so many artists were in his time, there wasn't much evidence in, in, in the catalogue. But do you know of any connection with the with the, with Japanese prints?
4: I imagine he did see them. And uh, because the other interesting thing was that, of course, he was in Paris and he did show in an exhibition with Picasso, which is another reason why I think it's particularly moving that we should have both of them under under our roof at the same time, because that also, I think, tells you about the sort of serendipity of different artistic journeys. You know, Picasso's career went off in one particularly global direction and Spillia went back and lived this sort of rather more isolated life in in Belgium, but i can 't believe that he hadn 't seen a lot of Japanese prints.
0: one of the other connections with your work, I thought was in his monochrome yes color so yes. so he, um,
4: <laughs> which of course is very you know it's very eastern
0: indeed, but it's to me what 's really interesting is yes your your work occasionally has that kind of darkness and inkiness that that we mm. that, that, that I mentioned, but very often your work, even though you 're using you know, monochrome, it, it can have a lightness, whereas in 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 um Spillia, that 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 lightness appears only occasionally and gently, doesn't it?
4: Well, what I could say is perhaps he was more miserable than I am. I don't know. I don't know whether that's it's as basic as that. Who knows where I might end up? Um, I think there's one other thing which I find particularly appealing about his work. Uh, the partic- is his choice of materials and how he uses them. And the fact that he never really felt at home with the traditional European medium of, of oil on canvas. And he worked in layers and there's a softness to that. And I had a ver- very direct experience of this. So when I was working in Japan, I was using water-based pigment on paper and I still use water-based pigments. And there's something about the way a water-based pigment meets a slightly absorbent surface, which is much softer. And in a way, the surface becomes one with the colour on it, unlike oil, which more, you know, sits on the surface a bit more. And I can remember when I moved back here after being in Japan for so long, I found oil paintings actually quite difficult to look at I found the surface was very, it it sort of excluded the viewer, the sort of shininess of it. Um, I mean, I've obviously got over this now, but it was quite an interesting reaction to what was basically my European culture. I'd kind of grown away from it.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. But of course, you've also, I mean, drawings are fundamental to your practice, you I mean, drawings are fundamental to your paintings, but also you, you have you have works on paper. And of course, printmaking and printmaking is sort of a, a key part of your artistic armoury mm. as well, isn't it? And I'm wondering about how much when you're looking at Spillert's work on paper, whether it, whether you see it in relation to your own works on paper more or whether actually that's that's too binary a way of thinking is, you know,
4: I think particularly the one I've chosen, and I think the reason I'm drawn to it, are the calligraphic marks. And having spent that much time in the East, you learn a slightly different understanding of the drawn mark. And because calligraphy is so fundamental to Eastern culture, and because it comes from the written word, the sort of individual identity of the brushed line I think is stronger than the line in the West which can be much more descriptive and I think in this work I mean to to be honest this could almost have been done by an Eastern calligrapher.
0: It does I mean it immediately conjures those scrolls doesn't it the long scrolls in the, in the, in the one season the British Museum for instance.
4: Yes. And the way those scrolls, I mean, the other interesting thing about those scrolls is the way they're read because they are, you know, they're narrative picture scrolls and you read them from one direction. And that's very different from reading an illustrated book, for example, which just can give you random access. So it's actually the physicality of the scroll is important to the composition of the picture. And it's also slightly filmic in a way.
0: Yes, very much so. And that's actually a point that's made by Luke Toyman's in the Royal Academy catalogue, isn't it? He sees he sees a well. He makes the connection between the work called Vertigo by Schrilliet and and Hitchcock, and there is that sort of there's, there is a cinematic quality to his work.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And the way he's using the edges, and of course, again in the East, without the central vanishing point pers- perspective, broadly speaking, the way the artist engages the four edges is almost as important as what's going on right in within the, the middle of the picture and i think this is another brilliant example of that
0: now the 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 show itself would would have been in its last weeks now probably the second to last week i think is the reality that it will not open again when you know we, the the news this week was that that cultural institutions might open at the earliest in July. Yeah. But obviously this was due to tour to the Museo d'Orsay. So can you tell us whether whether there's any
4: For, at the moment we've we've got a tour of it online which I think is is as you know is a wonderful stopgap. Um I don't know whether I mean honestly it depends when we're able to open and how we're able to open. At the moment we're working on the logistics of how you get people through through the building, frankly, yeah, yeah. because the building is unbelievably complicated. And if you've got to have one way traffic and two metres apart, it's, it's a whole piece of work. I think if we could open it, we would love to.
0: Well, we both mentioned the catalogue and the catalogue is actually a really beautiful book. So we should urge people to read that if they if they can.
4: Absolutely. And I would urge people to look at Spilliot. I think he's a much overlooked artist. And what was interesting, I found in a in short space of time, he was it was the exhibition was open Um, I had a lot of comments from other artists saying god I didn't I didn't know about him I'd never seen his work so I think he is what's often called an artist's artist.
0: Rebecca thank you so much for talking to us about him. Thank you. See the online tour that Rebecca mentioned visit royalacademy.org.uk and just to say that after I spoke to Rebecca the Royal Academy got in touch to say that the exhibition of Leon Spilett has been extended until the 20th of September and therefore dependent upon government advice and museums and other arts organisations being able to open after the 4th of July there is a possibility that it will open again so fingers crossed. And that's it for this week. You can subscribe to The Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com. Click on the subscribe link at the top left of the homepage. And please subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already and do give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. You can also find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook, Instagram and Telegram. The Telegram invite code is at the top of our daily newsletters which you can subscribe to at theartnewspaper.com. The Week in Art is produced by Julia Michalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack and David is also the editor. Thanks to Scott, to Anna and Margaret, and to Rebecca, and thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. Visit Christie's.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private
4: sales, online, art, anytime.